Hello everyone, and welcome back, at last, to Remedial Studies. I'm Rachel, I'm here with my co-host Hannah. We yet survive in this ravaged world that we all live in. It's been a minute, we're fine, as fine can be. We finally have the mental fortitude, <laughs> essentially, to carry on with hobbies and doing things we like, because that is, honestly, I, I can't speak for you, Hannah, but it's, uh, some of the past seven-ish months, that's uh, felt like even too daunting a task. Yeah, it's um, it's been rough. I, uh, for, I didn't get to mention this during our pre-production meeting. Mm-hmm. I re-listened to our last episode. Sweet summer children. <laughs> and that was my reaction. Oh, oh, honey, <laughs> you got a big storm coming. <laughs> and you don't even know. No, that is that is so true. I don't think either of us really want to dwell on it because that's not what we're here for. The foreseeable future is still a bit a bit bleak. Um, but we're gonna try to make things again, because making things makes you feel like you're in uh, a little bit more control of your immediate situation, and hopefully uh, we can get 45 minutes to an hour of you feeling like you're a little more in control of your situation. Yeah, I'm gonna try not to spend every night crying on the couch while I watch Lucifer, but no promises. Yeah, there's, there's no no promises. No gods, no kings, only tears. So today, though, we're we're going to finally, <laughs> finally talk about Sony's Spider-Man in, Into the Spider-Verse. It's an animated film that came out uh, in December of 2018, which feels like a decade ago. But it has to do with uh, the story of Miles Morales, who is a, um, I don't think, I don't remember if they ever explicitly state his age. I always saw him as being like 13, 14 who's uh lives in brooklyn and he's um an afro latina kid who uh, through a series of events and happenstances becomes spider-man essentially he gets bitten by a radioactive spider the thing is though he doesn't exist in our universe and the spider-man in his universe who's this i realized he was younger than me on this last watching and that gave me an existential crisis oh 26-year-old grad student Peter Parker dies trying to prevent Wilson Fisk, the kingpin, from using a particle collider to go to other dimensions for reasons that are made apparent later on in the film. The whole movie is is the story of these other, of Miles and the other spider people who are pulled into his version of New York during that first experiment with, with, the, with the particle collider. There's Peter B. Parker, who's like, a Peter Parker we have not seen in film in quite some time, maybe ever, now that I'm thinking about it. Like, 30s, very much at the bottom crest of his prime Peter Parker, <laughs> who has been through some shit, and, like, him and Mary Jane broke up, and Aunt May died, and he doesn't really know what to do with his life. And he tumbles into Miles Morales' world, and they, like, help each other become Spider-Man again. And then there's Gwen Stacy, who's Spider-Gwen, who is also from another version of Miles's world where like her peer Peter Parker died and she also helps Miles and Peter B. Uh, and then there's the three, not lesser, but like the three supporting um, spider people who are from worlds far beyond 
what we would be able to recognize. There's Spider Noir, who punches Nazis in 1933. And is voiced by Nick Cage. And is voiced by Nicholas Cage. <laughs> the most inspired casting I have seen in quite some time. There's Penny Parker, who um, I believe is voiced by Kimiko Glenn, mm-hmm. who I know from Orange is the New Black. Penny Parker, uh, she's rendered almost in this like anime kind of style, and she's from like the 32nd century and has a psychic link with this spider in her dad's mech. And then there's Spider-Ham, uh, who, who's just, they just let John Mulaney talk. And he became Spider-Ham, I believe. <laughs> I do love that. But who's very, who's very Looney Tunes. But it's the story of Miles becoming Spider-Man and like figuring out how he fits in, into this world set to a, a backdrop of them trying to, first of all, get, get, get the other Spider-People home, but also foiling this plan the Kingpin has for trying to pull another version of his wife, Vanessa, and their son from a, an, another dimension because um they died in a car accident in Miles's dimension. There's a, a supporting villain in the form of Olivia Octavius, Doc Ock, who is a woman, uh, a middle-aged mad scientist. Life goals. <laughs> exactly, life goals. <laughs> At the end of the film, the big, the big, like, culminating moment, Miles becomes Spider-Man. He does the heroic leap of faith off this, like, miles-long building in New York City and sends Peter B. Peter B. Parker home while saying his own advice back to him in a way that makes me, like, feel things every time. And everyone is good in the end. hmm There's more to say in the summary, but it might be better for us to just kind of leap into it because I feel like there's a lot of different paths to go with this film. Do you have anywhere in particular you would like to start? I think it would be good if we talk about the Spider-Man feature film timeline. First. Yes. The history and context, the the very modern short-term history yeah. of the Spider-Man feature film, which begins in 2002 mm-hmm. uh, with the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, uh, which I realized I graduated high school in 09, which means this came out while I was in like grade school. Yeah, this would have, this movie would have come out, I would have been 10. Oh, that's crazy. But anyway, so this predates, this is a superhero film that predates 2008 Iron Man, which is considered by many to be the start of, like, that's the start of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This is the start of the this renaissance, whatever, of yeah. superhero films, right? I, I say that with as much, I don't know, skepticism as is possible. I think maybe what people are trying to mean by that is that Iron Man really, I think, is is a good... I say good. <laughs> it's a point where Marvel Studios sort of started to get their ball rolling and there was like a visual language that kind of developed for how we see Superman... Not Superman, superhero movies. But there are a great many franchises, Spider-Man being one of the closest, that predate that that renaissance i remember being a kid and like spider-man was like it (laughs) for for superhero (laughs) movies 
I remember it was like an event when Spider-Man 2 came out because a superhero movie in the 21st century got a sequel because it, it just wasn't a thing. Like it wasn't the the thing that it is now where it's not even tapping into how much of a corner it kind of has on creative stuff in that in that realm. It's a it's big business now. Mm hmm. But that franchise ended with 2007 Spider-Man 3, which gives us the infamous <laughs> walking down the sidewalk with the weird finger with gun. The, it, with the, the 2005 emo haircut. Yep. So, and that was the, that was a Venom movie. We got another Venom movie later, which I think some people think is like similarly a dumpster fire, but which I personally love. See, here's the thing. Venom is a dumpster fire that's earnest. I love it. And and Tom Hardy <laughs> is just doing Tom Hardy things. Uh and both of those things together make a good movie in my opinion. Yep. No further arguments will be accepted on the matter case closed. Yes, bring in the dancing lobsters. Yeah, bring in the dancing lobsters. So then there is a scene and I'm going to wrap the Donald Glover stuff in, into this section um because mm-hmm. i think it'll dovetail nicely in 2010 there's a campaign for donald glover to be the next spider-man yes he it plays troy in community who has spider-man pajamas on in one scene i don't watch community but i know that fandom is rapid so <laughs> yes they do this internet campaign donald glover is is pretty interested in the idea he does not get cast as spider-man and instead, all of the nerds are terribly, terribly racist to him. <laughs> for a second, I said this in our pre-production meeting, for a second, I was so excited about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, I lived in a universe where the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies didn't exist. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so Donald Glover does not get cast as spider-man he gave a really good interview on hard knock tv about um and i and this that there's a sound bite of him saying you know people were using the n-word people were being horrible and like i you know i expected that like he's a black man in america this is not a news flash donald glover is is what i interpreted him as saying he said that he got a really nice letter is very polite from a guy who was trying to explain to him that there are no black kids like Peter Parker. And I think that was what really said what really bothered him is that there were people who who exist in this fantasy fandom, which requires like a suspension of disbelief, who could not believe that there was not a smart black kid in Queens who liked photography and science. And like that that was what really infuriated him. Because of course there are those kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, yeah, this sort of weird racism and like, I guess they're microaggressions, like, oh, you know, you're pretty for a black girl, like those kinds of like really yeah. messed up kind of things, like that flavor of racism sort of haunts the Miles Morales franchise, I guess I would say. Yeah. I agree with that. As a person who kind of got into Miles Morales, it was first, he first appeared in, I believe, 2011. And I remember, I don't think it was that Christmas, I think it was the year after, I asked for the comics because I'd always been kind of interested in superhero comics because um, that's when like Marvel was really getting off the ground. Like 2012 was when the Avengers came out. 
but I'd never really been into comics. And I really wanted to, like, get into it because this was around the time where I was kind of realizing that I didn't really know what was going on with my brain at the time. But I was really struggling to, like, sit down and, like, read a page. But I wanted to, like, read still. And comics felt like a much more digestible way to do that because there's multiple layers of, like, input with the text and the art. I remember just being, like, really into it and I was, like, researching it. and. I was not surprised, but I was really disappointed (laughs) when people had apparently, when it was announced prior to publication, that Miles was going to be Spider-Man. People were real dicks about it. They tried to say, oh, well, Marvel's just doing it as as a stunt. And there is... I'm, I'm better able to articulate it now. But even, like, back then, like, that really bothered me. I think the reason it bothers me, because this is kind of starting up again now that, like, Spider-Man Miles Morales is going to be a release title for the next PlayStation this winter. People are like, oh, well, he can't be Spider-Man because he's not Peter Parker. And I'm like, well, then we didn't read the same comic. (laughs) Because Spider-Man is not Spider-Man because he's Peter Parker. That's not a thing. But there's this attitude within fandom and it is not exclusive to marvel and i'll mention something very quickly after um i'm done with this point there is a knee-jerk reaction particularly by people who don't see themselves as like overtly racist especially there is a call for justification when any character who deviates from the sort of I've seen it most overtly with race, but it can exist across multiple intersections, like of of gender and sexual orientation and so like on. Like when we got a a woman Thor. Yeah, Thor, goddess of thunder. Oh my god, I remember that. Or when Sam Wilson was announced as the next Captain America. Like, there's this cry, this demand that almost like Marvel. Marvel was obviously the company writing it, but almost like the characters themselves have to have some sort of justification for even being there. But you bet your ass none of them turn around and ask, why is this person being white central to their story? Because mm-hmm. 90% of the time, prob- that's probably lowballing it. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. It's not. It has no meaningful impact on their story. And that's why it makes me so angry. Um, I remember this in particular surrounding the sort of the Marvel television universe that they tried with Jessica Jones and Luke Cage. And I don't remember his last name, Danny from Iron Fist. And this whole conversation, because there was a, a short lived, but there was a campaign to have Danny, who is white in the comics. And it is a comic that is very heavily influenced when it was published by adventure fiction of the day which sort of had a lot of white dudes kind of go in and to asia and africa and like become heroes because white savior tropes similar to how in doctor strange he like learns from the 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 it's not the great old one but that's cthulhu (laughs) Um, but he um he he learns from this master and somehow is better than literally everyone else at it it's it's that kind of vibe there is a very distinct connotation to that when it is a white kid learning from Asian teachers. Regardless of the actual intent of the writers 
then or now. So there was a campaign to have, I believe Stephen Yun was mentioned at one point, most notably known from The Walking Dead. There was a discussion of having Danny be played by an Asian actor. And people got real defensive about it. Like they got real up in arms and they're and like the, the keystone argument I saw so many people make was, well, what if they changed Luke Cage's race? The part about that that made me so angry is Luke Cage being a black man in America is central to his story. Danny from Iron Fist being white is not. And that's often the difference between stories that include people of color. It's something that you, especially like I grew up, I've talked about this before. I grew up in an area that is 90% plus white. You could count the kids of color at our high school on one hand. You have to teach yourself to look for these things because you were not raised to. Like, you just weren't. And there's a part of me that wants to believe that that's a factor in some of this, that people just, especially like the really polite people that Donald Glover talks about, to tie it back, that don't see things because they it has never been real to them but it's also really sad that people exist in this world where anything that deviates from what they perceive as normal has to have a reason to be there when they do not use that same line of thinking about what they do view as normal so yeah basically a lot of the the origin of miles morales was viewed as almost like this political correctness stunt which you cannot see the face i'm making but feel it in your hearts because <laughs> everyone knows that political correctness makes you just a ton of money in capitalist oh, america of, anyway yeah of course Ugh. but yeah so so that was sort of a lot of what that era of spider-man was about and then we got amazing spider-man which we will not speak of because honestly it's not really worth talking about and we don't remember anything about them. And we don't remember it. anything about them. And then Tom Holland got, uh, when Marvel got rights to include Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Tom Holland was cast. Who, I will say, uh, I have not seen either Spider-Man movie. Not even for any particular reason, I just haven't seen him. What I've seen of him, I do like him better than Andrew Garfield. Yes. I have seen those movies, and I actually really like them. I I really liked Spider-Man Far From Home. This is a spo- we're we're a spoiler show, so I can say this. We're now in a post Iron Man world, yeah. and Spider-Man Far From Home really examines like that that legacy is complicated, and Tony Stark was complicated and sort of a jerk. Like it's yeah, it's not easy. Is there are a lot of negative things that that come out of the things that Tony Stark had, did and has done. Like, please see Age of Ultron. Yeah. So I really like I really like them. I really like Tom Holland. I really like Zendaya. Zendaya, our queen. Yes, I will. I do want to bring back the Donald Glover thing just real quick yes. because he is in Spider Man Homecoming, which came out in 2016, and when it came out. I saw Donald Glover was in it. I was kind of mad because Donald Glover was not Spider-Man and they cast him <laughs> as like this sort of like a uh, petty criminal. Oh. And I'm like, I don't I don't get this. I don't vibe with that. Well, here here's the thing, and I'm not really into super, I'm not really into superhero comics. I've not read any 
the only superhero comics I try to read a Teen Titans run, but the writing and the art was terrible because they gave everyone noodle arms. Oh, fuck that shit. I just, I'm like, please draw some. I know drawing hands is hard, but like, please make an effort. But anyway, uh, so I was like, kind of like, I don't get this. So it turns out that they cast Donald Glover as Uncle Aaron because he makes this uh, this reference to like his nephew, and so he's named his name is Aaron, it's Aaron Davis, I think. Yeah, Aaron Davis. So his name is Aaron Davis. He had he so he's like supposed to be Uncle Aaron the Prowler. But this was such, I mean, I didn't pick up on it. Like, you have to be, you have to be familiar with the comics Mm -hmm. to get it. Because the Prowler hasn't been in anything else. Yeah, exactly. I didn't, I didn't pick up on it. I didn't get it. But I guess, like, it's it's supposed to be a nod to, like, Miles Morales potentially existing in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But it's, (laughs) it was so obtuse to someone who's not a comic book fan that I just didn't get it. Yeah. Um, because I guess Donald Glover's too old to play Spider-Man now <laughs> because we're obsessed with making Spider-Man under the age of. 25. Yeah, that might that might be a good point <laughs> to kind of jump into some of the things this movie does really well because that is something that has continually bothered me like since the Andrew Garfield movies is this obsession with Peter Parker as a teenage to twenty something because the majority of the time he has spent in the comics since his release has been as an adult. Like, that's a relatively newish thing, is this obsession with keeping him young. And in some ways, that might sort of act, that might be meant to act as a counterpoint to the older, um, especially the older male figures within the larger cinematic universe, like Iron Man in, in particular. Like, I think that's, from what I know of the film, really overt in, like, Homecoming, is that Peter is sort of, even though Tony, Tony's Tony, I could do a whole show about him but I will refrain. Him and Tony Stark have a, a sort of mentor-student-ish relationship at some some points that carries over to Infinity War in some ways. But what this movie does that I think is, is kind of cool is it does both. You have Miles Morales, the teenager, going through this, this traumatizing and confusing change, and I don't just mean puberty, of being bitten by a spider and then having to sort of learn his own powers and learn to control them and so on and so forth but you also have peter b parker who's the i guess in some ways you could consider him like our universe peter parker i guess who is peter parker as an adult who has gone through that sort of golden years period and um has not come out very well on the other side of it and who isn't he is not a hero in the way that we view superheroes not in like an edgy way like that's kind of what's stopping me from watching the boys is that it looks well it it looks like it's trying too hard to be this weird edgy anti-marvel thing in this movie it, it is not like that at all it it's basically like peter parker is a adult yes <laughs> and all the bullshit that that comes with it comes with sweatpants a lot of sweatpants. I feel like we don't need the boys because we already have Watchmen. Like, that's... You're not... Yeah. Is that... Is there anything new to the conversation? The boys wants what Watchmen has. Whatever that is. 
I still don't really know whatever that is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yeah, I love middle-aged Peter Parker because I, it's played with a sense of humor, but not necessarily with a sense of, like, shame. Yeah. Bad things happened to him, and it was hard, and he was scared. And, like, I don't feel like they're shaming him. Like, sometimes you have characters hit, like, a low point in the in the character that came to mind immediately for me when we were talking about it was um how they played thor post whichever i feel like it was in endgame it was okay yeah it was in game you're right in infinity war he gets the haircut and the new axe and stuff that kind of like treating that like a really bad thing happened to him and he is is dealing with trauma and it's not attractive it's not you know it yeah and to turn that into like a the butt of a joke i really was like this is in really poor yeah <laughs> and I'll, I'll i'll try to be brief about it but i do feel that i i agree that it's relevant the way the russos treated chris hemsworth throughout both of those movies is bullshit <laughs> and the fact that they basically through the good work that thor ragnarok did and not just because i love that movie and not just because i love taika watiti but like the actual nuanced discussion of what of like fucking colonialism and what being a god born of a conquering nation means in our modern day like in the fact that they did all all that work on his character that taika watiti actually let chris hemsworth do instead of telling him what to do and the fact that they threw all that back in his face Mm -hmm. is first of all bad writing (laughs) and second of all unfucking acceptable (laughs) like but i i agree like that is really i think indicative of how we treat i say we how characters like that are, are treated like the fact that he's comic relief throughout a lot of the film is really distasteful. And I think when I, and I originally learned about this film, because in this might be worth saying, Sony is a bit of a hit and miss studio. Yeah. A lot of studios can be like that. I think they, the, some people call this movie an apology for the emoji movie, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. But I remember being kind of concerned because a lot of the times... Uh, It's not just men, but a lot of the examples I'm thinking of are the middle-aged man who's kind of put on weight and he's not in his prime anymore is like comic relief, but in a bad way. Yes. They never sink into that with Peter Parker. It's a lot of the, um, they don't dwell on his pain a lot in the beginning, I think, because he doesn't. But it is funny to me how they will animate the truth, but keep... The, the story that he is trying to tell Miles in the narration. Mm-hmm. Like, that's funny in a way, but it is also, it's not making fun of him. It's, it's, it's a really succinct way of saying, well, this is what really happened and here's what he wants to believe happened. Yeah. Also, I will say, if I was going to be pulled through an extra dimensional portal, I would also try to take my pizza with me. <laughs> Who wouldn't? That's just a human thing. That's fine. That's just, yeah, that's that's some hunter-gatherer instinct at play. But yeah, so I, I think having that sort of, Miles is the lead, but Peter's very much like second billing. Having that dual focus, I think, kind of subverts that near omnipresent story of Peter Parker as a teenager in that we get to see 
a character that many people think they're familiar with in Spider-Man. We get to see from multiple perspectives what being Spider-Man actually is. And this might be worth mentioning as well. Peter Parker in the comics is not the only Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. He never has been. There's been Spider-Women, Spider-Gwen, Miles Morales was was brought in. Like, there's always been sort of a multitude of Spider-People throughout the Spider-Verse. And it's refreshing to see that actually addressed in in a film. Uh, I want to talk, might be, speaking of comics, this might be a good time to lean into sort of the visual language of the film. Because I feel like that's where a lot of the success comes from in a lot of ways. A lot of the time when I, when I watch this movie, I'm reminded of a quote that I believe is attributed to Jim Henson. Good puppets will always look like good puppets. <laughs> and what that means is, like, I, wa- I literally watch Muppet Christmas Carol every year. My disbelief is just as suspended as when I watched it when I was a kid. Yes, you know they're puppets. It's the fucking Muppets. But it still looks good in a lot of ways a lot of like old henson produ- henson pr- productions stand up like the new oh my god the new dark crystal series is gorgeous like all all the all all that kind of stuff but cgi bad cgi and i'm including a lot of 3d animation in this by virtue of the medium does not age exceptionally well i will say there are some exceptions to this first one weirdly enough because i was reminded of this this week shrek Shrek still looks good. <laughs> I think it's because Shrek was not trying to be realistic. Exactly. But there's there's animation. When you try to be realistic, there is no getting away from it looking dated. Or, as we have seen in a film that came out a year after this movie, the nightmare that is 2019 Lion King, you fall into that weird uncanny valley. I can still see their dead eyes. I can still see them. Oh my god, it's weird. <laughs> like, well, when do the lambs stop screaming, Clarice? Like, I can't. <laughs> no, like, because literally, what makes me so angry about movies like like 2019 The Lion King is it's it's twofold. It is a completely negligent use of the medium. And it's insulting to the artists that worked on it. Mm-hmm. The whole point to me of working within any medium is that the medium should serve to tell the story in a way that is not possible or as effective in other mediums. Animation, especially in the past, I'd say probably 10, 5 to 10 years, has almost skewed towards this weird obsession with like photorealism. Mm-hmm. Then just make a fucking movie. <laughs> like, like, there's no point when it's so expensive and so time-consuming that it's not even, and it's not going to look good in five years. Like, <laughs> this movie, Into the Spider-Verse, won, I think it, I want to say it was every major award for best animated feature. I'm not, don't quote me on that. Maybe I just want to believe. One of the movies it was up against was The the Incredibles 2, which was Pixar's offering from that year. The thing I remember most about Incredibles 2 is there was so much of the detail in the animation that literally just looked like Pixar showing off. Like how they animate the fuzz on like people's sweaters and like 
the models for people's hair. And like, yeah, in a lot of ways, having the software for that is very impressive because we could not dream of that when The Incredibles first came out, um, the first one. However, what does it serve? What is it adding to the story? And usually it's nothing. Mm-hmm. What was so refreshing about how Spider-Verse was made is every animation choice serves the story. The big picture of the visual language is it's made to look like a comic. And you cannot do that in any, like, quite literally, because comics are drawn. You can't do that really in, in any other medium. There's a, there's a way that this movie functions in that it keeps, like, it has really overt use of line art. Kirby dots are all over the movie in, like, backgrounds and on. There's hatching on people's clothing and, and there's the, like, you know, kick, pow, people uh, that, that shows up when people get punched. There's a uh, text that moves across the screen and shows up when people think. Like, stuff that is not meant to be realistic. It's meant to be heightened. Because that's... I mean, they're superheroes! <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if I may uh, sort of not harp on this, because that's... I'm not harping, I'm discussing. Jack Kirby... With the crowd that listens to this, especially a friend of the show, Matt Leggetti, will be familiar with, was sort of this, uh, was a bit very a juggernaut of an artist uh, when Marvel was getting started. He's often a, a little overshadowed by Stan Lee, who, well, I'm assuming you live on the planet Earth, you know who Stan Lee was. But his, his art style... Brett Staples, who wrote an opinion piece about him in 2007, I believe, for the New York Times, talked about his art as creating a grammar of storytelling, and that before he really sort of took over at Marvel, comics didn't look the way they we imagine them as looking now. Now they're they're almost they're narrative, they're cinematic. There's a style of of motion, and Kirby really helped innovate that and make it the norm in the medium there's something very explosive um, especially if you read his comics from like the 50s and 60s there's something very explosive about his style that was not really prevalent until he started doing it it's kind of like i always use these examples it's like in film the blade like blade runner and the matrix no movie before blade runner looked like blade runner and then everyone wanted to look like Blade Runner, same with The Matrix <laughs> in the 90s. Like, everyone wanted to recapture that feeling of seeing something new. That's something that, that, that remains to this day. And if you listen to this podcast, I'm sure I've talked about this before. I don't feel being derivative is inherently a negative thing. Because, guys, we've been here for thousands of years. It is so rare that anyone thinks of anything genuinely original. You're fine. Just do whatever you want to do but there's this tension and energy to kirby's sort of art style that i remember uh listening to an interview with wired that the lead of character design and the visual effects supervisor talk about where they were really devoted to bringing that dynamic sense of movement to the film and not just for the characters like for everything there and it's not smooth which i like there's almost something, um, not choppy. It, it looks more 
dynamic. There's no, like, they talk about how they, they were really, they made a choice not to use motion blur. So you can pause on any frame and it looks like an illustration. You can tell where it's coming from and where it's going. I was thinking about this before we got in our pre-production meeting. A lot of that stuff is 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 hard <laughs> to pull <laughs> off. In a way, probably a lot harder than some of the stuff from uh, from contemporary studios. Also, in some ways, easier. They talked about this as well about the choice to not animate full backgrounds. You don't do you do you really need a model of a person in every window of a building that is like miles away from the foreground? No. You don't need that. <laughs> the choice to like use paintings or just like color blobs that that will translate on screen correctly, um, the way they're supposed to be. Choice to render each of the spider people slightly different so you can tell sort of how close to Miles's universe they are um, is incredibly effective. What the film does really well is also what I feel animation was always kind of meant for to tell a story in a way only animation can tell it. And I worry, and this might be a little too in, in, inside baseball, we don't have to dwell on it. I, I worry that that is something that is becoming more and more rare in like big animation studios. Obviously there there is so much good work going on in smaller studios and indie studios and people just putting out amazing film and amazing art that unfortunately does not get the recognition it does because uh, we live in a society and there uh, are monopolies on things. Disney, I mean, I remember it being such a big deal. This is this was the first movie, if I'm remembering correctly, this was the first movie since 2006. A non-Disney feature won the Best Animated Feature Oscar when a Disney feature was was also nominated. 2006 and a lot of that comes from a sort of cultural perspective within hollywood where i still feel animation is not completely respected voice acting is also not not respected i think this movie came out around the same time there was a big voice acting strike like that's that's but that's neither here nor there i guess what all that is to say is i feel people responded to spider-verse the way they did because it wasn't trying, and not trying to be something it wasn't, it became much more poignant and much more relatable to both an audience familiar with comics, because you do key in on that almost visual language that comics have that was translated to the film, but it also, I think, introduced a lot of people to a world beyond just the Marvel Cinematic Universe. In a way that I, I actually also feel Thor Ragnarok tried to do with the color and the music and focusing more on character. Because one of my biggest gripes with, with Marvel has always been color for some reason. Like the fact that everything's in grayscale, essentially, and like there's there's this whole idea of what movies should be. But something that might might be also worth talking about as we talk about miles is the overarching sort of theme of what superheroes are in marvel because to me i think the, the thing that always has appealed to me about spider-man as a character is that every person who wears the mask 
is just a person in some respect. Yeah, I think this movie went, we talked about this too, is that this movie, like the main thesis, which is stated outright at the first Miles Universe's Peter Parker's funeral, is that we all have the capacity to be heroes and anyone can wear the Spider-Man mask. Like we are all, like Mary Jane says, we are all Spider-Man. And I think that's on one hand very inspiring and also like, like anyone can do this, anyone can be this. And it's really good for people to see someone other than an able-bodied, straight, white, heterosexual, this neurotypical, blah, 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 guy being Spider-Man. Like it's good for us to have that capacity and that the imagination, I guess, to see other people in that role. And that's really what the movie is about, I think, at a, at a fundamental level. Like, what does it take to be a hero? I mean, that's always one of the things I think superhero movies, that's at the crux of any superhero film that's sort of a defining feature of the genre, even, mm-hmm. is, is this examination of what does it take to be heroic? What does it mean to have power and therefore responsibility? What are the consequences of that? What does that look like? You know, it's not always easy to be a hero and it it causes a lot of issues for the main character. And that's why I think, you know, that's part of the issue or part of the main conflict in this film is that Miles does not necessarily want to embrace being Spider-Man. This is an accident, right? Anyone can be bitten by a radioactive spider. So he's like, this is just a thing that happened to me. I didn't choose this. I didn't want this. I just, I was having a hard enough time figuring out, like, how to go to high school, let alone how to deal with the fact that I can't get my hand out of someone's hair because it's sticky. (laughs) The level of complication I was not prepared for. Like, my pants don't fit anymore. I don't understand any of this. I'm sticking to the sides of buildings. So I think that's kind of... It's fun, too, because, like, that age is not easy. (laughs) And you're already trying to figure out who you are as, like, a person, and now you have to figure out who you are as a superhero. Like, they kind of play into each other. And maybe that's why we're so fixated on Spider-Man as a teenager, but I feel like it's probably some ageist garbage. Un- unsure. On some level, I-, I I would not be surprised if that's true. But I also feel like this is echoed in the fact they had Doc Ock as a woman and a middle-aged mm-hmm. woman, and I love that. I love that so much. They said that they tried to work it as Doc Ock as a guy, and it just didn't work for them. They were like, in this universe where everything is different, why is Doc Ock still a, a man? And once they flipped Doc Ock to being a woman, like, it, things clicked for them. Yeah. So, I feel like there's a little bit of that, like, when we talk about Miles Morales and his background, like, it, I don't know, it just, there's a rightness to it. I enjoy seeing people who aren't, like, I'm familiar, right, <laughs> with being a straight white person. Uh, it's not that interesting. I mean, it is, I mean, like, I just think there's still, there's always going to be space for those stories. But, like, I enjoy learning and seeing and and understanding, like, different ways of being. Like, I came from a very white community, just like you did. And, like, there's, I have to do a lot of work 
I, I can't just we- read white fragility and like be done. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I have, you have to actually engage with people who are different than you in a meaningful way. I don't know. I guess I'm just on this tangent because of everything that's been going on, you know, in the world right now. And it just like, I feel like people are so resistant to change. I think we're headed, I hope we're headed in the right direction. I mean, this film got a really positive reception and people really liked it. I mean, the voice acting is great. Shamik Moore, who plays Miles, does a great job. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got Jake Johnson and Marishala Ali is in it. And he's like amazing and everything. Um, I don't know. Like, it was just really... I've diverged, but it was really good, and it's really meaningful, and I blubbered at the <laughs> at the end. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think, I really hope that we are headed towards, because I, I think they go, I think they go hand in hand, a revolutionary moment that is also an empathy moment in this country, for please at least some of it. It always it just makes sense to me that if you see stories of people who aren't you and you understand that those stories are real and those people are real and their experience is different from you but is is as valid as yours, you can't come out of that without being a more empathetic person. And in in my experience of fandom especially and and especially the nice people that Donald Glover talked about in that interview. The people who genuinely think that they're being kind by explaining, oh, well, there's just no black people like that. And they believe it. I really am saddened by the bubble these people must live in where the people who are out there in the world just aren't real to them. And and I think all of us can experience that at one point or another because... It's like how something isn't real to someone until it happens to someone they know. And that I I think is a big stumbling block for a lot of people, regardless of whether they're cognizant of it or not. There's a disconnect between the idea and the reality of, of things, often because we do not see them in our day to day lives regarding a lot of oh by the way black lives matter full stop (laughs) just thought y'all should know yeah but it's with everything that's going on in the world right now like especially in in my part of the world um or my part of the state even because i i'm i'm uh, in transit going to back to school in about a month um so i am uh hanging with my parents who still live in that 90 percent plus white area like the police are a non-presence here essentially so the idea that that experience is different somewhere else is just it's not even like contemplatable for some of the people who live here because it's not their experience but something doesn't have to be your experience to be real and i think that's uh, that's ultimately the real value of of stories that include deviations from the perceived norm which is like and white women were complicit in this too. Don't try me. Of the white, straight, heteronormative, usually vaguely Christian <laughs> stories that we get. Because those stories ultimately 
are a minority out in the real world. Like, it's all, it's like when people are like, oh, well, is the next person going to be like black and queer and gender nonconforming and disabled and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, do you think there's not a person out there like that? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like you understand that that is a person who like, yes, yes. Why? I'm not. Why not? I'm not following your <laughs> argument. Like, that's not a real argument. Like, I'm sorry, we're all watching a movie where a person has spider powers. I'm not drawing the line at race. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's not... There is, there is such a particular brand of cognitive dissonance to that. That is... It's one of those things I can't think about it for too long because I just get furious. It is so prevalent in fandom. And it also, I, I think, almost comes from this weird victim complex that heavy air quotes nerds have like i am getting a phd in literature i am a nerd you have made your entire personality about star wars <laughs> that's not a person i really feel there's a difference there but it's that's that's a bit pedantic but still yeah marvel not even marvel disney makes billions upon billions of dollars every year on stuff that 20 years ago was heavy air quotes again nerd shit that is the norm now it is not the the misaligned self-identity it, it it used to be and probably never was to the degree some people remember it being yeah. because of nostalgia and things like that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the Star Wars films were popular when they came out. If I oh, recall. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't recall because I was not alive in this. I was not alive, but if I remember <laughs> correctly, like Star Wars was incredibly popular. Lord of the Rings was incredibly popular as it was coming out and was critically and artistically lauded in its day. Speaking of practical effects standing up better than CGI. I don't really know how to describe it, and I don't really know what to make of it, but I really feel like there's an instinct, not even like an instinct, there's a, a desire. I, st I think in some circles that still sort of focus all of their attention on stuff like comics, particularly white circles, where people want to claim some sort of victimhood because they feel misaligned for some reason. <laughs> I, and I do think, I do think it, it can be a case of, oh, people don't dislike you because of your interests. They dislike you because you're kind of terrible around. It, it is literally the opening scene from The Social Network <laughs> where Rooney Mara is talking to Jesse Eisenberg. And she tells him, she's like, Mark, you're going to go the rest of your life thinking i think she says women in particular but people don't like you because you're a nerd and i'm here to tell you that's not true people don't like you because you're an asshole <laughs> yeah i don't know who needs to hear that but you need to hear that i don't i don't know where to go on that because it's such a deep-seated issue i remember seeing it most recently when I, I saw the first trailer for The Force Awakens, and the first face you see is John Boyega ripping off a Stormtrooper helmet. 
And I remember being so excited that there was going to be like a main black character and we were going to learn more about the stormtroopers. And it wasn't just going to be like a weird token character like Lando was in the original trilogy and like all this other stuff. Oh my God, you would have thought someone had killed these people's mother. Like it was crazy. <laughs> and then, I mean, again, we could do a whole other show about uh, how John Boyega got mistreated throughout yeah, that whole. Yeah, they did uh, him and really Oscar dirty. Isaac as well, and Kelly Marie Tran. All the actors yeah. of color who worked on Star Wars oh. got shafted. They really did. That's my thesis. There's this weird clinging to this victimhood that has more than likely never really existed mm-hmm. in in the scale that people seem to think it did. It's like, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, sir. We're here to worry about real problems <laughs> and real people's experience. This is hopefully a very short story, but it was something that I kept thinking about as I was thinking about what I wanted to say on this show. Years and years ago, I remember watching a video on um, a YouTuber. I don't know if she still posts, but there's a YouTuber. Her name was Glozell. She's like a 40, I think she was 40, early 40s at the time. A black woman who went to Disney World and she like saw like some procession or something like, while she was going to a ride. And um, a cast member who was playing Tiana, who's a black princess, walked by and she like waved and like touched her hand and gave her an autograph. And as she's walking away, she just bursts into tears. Because... She never thought she would see that. And to me, even if I don't see it initially, even if I don't understand it initially, that joy and relief at being seen will always trump my comfort. Okay, robots, that about does it for today. We hope that you enjoyed listening to uh, Rachel and myself talking about Into the Spider-Verse. I really like that movie. I am furious that there's a hyphen in Spider-Man, but it is what it is. <laughs> just, just as a parting shot. There, there are hills and we'll die on them, damn it. We are going to do another episode uh, in two weeks, um, and then we are probably going to go on hiatus for a little bit um, because Rachel is going to go get her doctorate, and that sounds very hard and like a lot of work, so we're just going <laughs> to give her some space <laughs> to figure out how to get her doctorate um, in peace. So I'm, I'm trying to not think about it. It'll be nice to be uh, working towards something I have wanted for a very long time uh but it is going to be a lot of work uh i'm i'm sure so once i kind of figure out how much time per week i need to dedicate to like class uh then we'll have a better idea of what our recording and upload schedule can be yeah we might go to once a month i don't know or we'll do intermittent i mean we're still paying the hosting fees so we're not going anywhere and i have all of our episodes on an external hard drive We'll stick around. I mean, you all know that Rachel and I aren't about the hustle. We're never going to try to monetize this. Because honestly, once you monetize something, that's 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 a joy suck. Yeah. Right there. Yeah, this is just something fun for us. And if you are also having fun with us, we appreciate it. All the same, though, please, please, we've been gone so long. Please like (laughs) and review and send us emails and tweets. 
we the external validation would go a long way to regular updates i feel like it's 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 like kudos and comments on fan fiction people please rachel would you like to give them our social media handle Sure. We are most easily reachable on Twitter at Remedial Studies. We are um, on Instagram, which I have been perilously neglecting at Remedial Studies as well. And we have an email address, Remedial Studies Podcast at gmail.com. We may be adding more socials in the future, but we're going to figure out time and commitment stuff on that before we announce it. But yeah. Get in touch with us on any of on any of our socials. It's uh well friends, it doesn't look like we're getting out of this anytime soon. Uh especially if you live in the States. <laughs> you know, we'll pass like ships in the night and we will just try our best to keep each other afloat as much as we can. Be nice to each other. Be empathetic. Wear a mask. Wear your fucking mask. I will find you. I will haunt you. Don't try me. Don't feel bad about just doing what you got to do to get to get through, whether that is throwing yourself into work or uh, doing the opposite or both, depending on when, when, when you need what you need. But I believe that is going to wrap us up. Yeah, we're doing the city we became next time. That's the only thing. We are. That's by N.K. Jemison. Yeah, N.K. Jemison's The City We Became, which I have been hyped as fuck to read for literal months. But we saved it for this show just for you. So, next time you will not see us, we will not see you, but you will hear us next time, robots. Bye! Bye, robots! <laughs>